Hey everyone, and warm welcome to the Happiness Podcast. Uh, today's guest, uh, such an amazing human being, is Amina Samani, and uh, she works in the intersection of coaching and neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity, for everyone who don't know it, it's uh, what lets people know that they can change their, their brain, right? So you can fully change how your brain operates and works. She specializes in neurolinguistics, which is similar to behavioral neuroscience. And um, she's been coaching for many, many years, like 15 years, if I'm correct. And she worked with executives from major companies like uh, Google, Facebook, Twitter, and which I really love. She's done a TEDx talk on, on the topic, and she's just such a happy human to be around. And uh, I think uh, I can learn a lot from her, and you can all learn a lot from her. So, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Hello. So, please um, tell me more about you, right? Like, how, how did you get to that point? Yeah. What's, your, what's your background? Yeah, and so... You know, I was thinking a lot about what I do, and I feel like I'm an archaeologist of the mind in a way because my deepest, deepest passion is helping people get to the root cause. And I believe my specialization is helping people get to root cause analysis, to the root of their core limiting beliefs and helping them make shifts. Um, and so the clients that I've worked with, a lot of times they'll come to me because they're just really worried or better yet, they're just really frustrated that they've tried XYZ book, they've tried XYZ framework, they've done the retreats, they've done all these things and they still couldn't get to the root of what they were pushing against. And um, yeah, I've been doing this for over 15 years and my studies for over six years with thousands of hours of, you know, uh, coaching, what I learned is that people can change their brain. Neuroplasticity is real and there's real strategies to do so. And you've seen very, very big, big, big shift in your behavior. For... Yeah. Oh yeah. Huge, huge. I mean, I was working with a client, actually I spoke to him this morning, um, he's CEO, kind of a unicorn startup and is having a lot of trouble making decisions, having hard conversations. Um, letting go of teams, really creating a culture um, that felt like it was really unified and thriving. And so on the surface, those seem like all problems that all leaders have. But when we dug in deeper, we found that the root cause of what was preventing him was that he was really looking for acceptance and love. And so everybody has a different root cause for why we do what we do. You and I could have the same problem, but a different root issue and once he was able to change that and really believe that he was lovable despite this um, belief, he was able to flip it around. His neural pathways changed. Immediately, he said, I stopped having imposter syndrome. We have these processes that I learned and studied for so long where we did a six-step belief change process. And now he's going to get rid of 5% of his company, 4% and maybe 5 And it's because... I mean, that doesn't sound like good news, but in a way, these people weren't performing and he was stagnant on it for six months. After changing his belief, he's going to bring in the right people, more aligned people. And uh, so I'm very curious, how did you get to do it with field of, uh, of yeah. neurolinguistics, of, of coaching, of neuroplasticity? Yeah. How did you get into it? Totally. Well, my heritage is Afghani, um, but I was born in Pakistan and I witnessed, you know, as you can imagine, some trauma growing up. I also grew up in an anxious home. 
And so I always used to ask myself, how can we feel better? I didn't know. And so by the time I was 16, I was practicing yoga. 18, 19, I was meditating. I went to India when I was 20. And I've just been a connoisseur of development. I just feel like and as I started to explore these different avenues, I started to feel better. And then actually one of my sisters, Rona, she's a psychologist. She was studying um, psychology and she introduced me to neurolinguistics, which was popularized by Tony Robbins. And I just fell in love. Right after college, I got into NYU for grad school, skipped out on it and started my six-year-long training. And after that, I just have never stopped. It's been my life's work to help people create happiness, mindfulness, and change their mind for the better. Yeah, and I, I can really see how, how passionate you are about it. <laughs> so maybe for you, like, let's make a definition of what is happiness. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I was thinking about that a lot. Uh, I don't have the best answer, but I can give you two answers. The first, let's talk about a neurological perspective. Happiness is a cocktail, a concoction of chemicals. If you really dissect happiness, right, there are chemicals such as dopamine. There are chemicals such as oxytocin. Dopamine is, you know, like when you get a text or you like accomplish something or just like some hit, you know, like a that's when you know like social media does cause dopamine hits. <laughs> um, oxytocin is the chemical of love. And so when you're really in love or women get, you know, produce oxytocin when they have a baby. Um, so these chemicals we kind of get addicted to, right? And so when you fall in love, everything is great and you rosy eyes. And we think it's that person that's eliciting that happiness from us. But in fact, it's your chemicals, it's your neurochemicals that are creating that for you. So then the big question is, if happiness is chemicals that are produced through external factors, can we produce the same chemicals internally without the external factors? And is it just as effective? And I would say it can be. And so I think happiness is a pursuit of well-being. I think happiness is a pursuit of self-care. And something that you do really well, Chris, is you prioritize your well-being and happiness over everything. That, you know, science, neuroscience, business, it's all showing the greatest leaders, the greatest CEOs have proper morning routines, have proper ways to sustain their mental fitness so they can produce more happiness. It just, for me, it just makes so much sense. No, it's like for me, it's what logic is going to do because it makes everything else way easier. Like... Like you wake up and like you know you bring yourself into a happy state, which I can make up grumpy. When you bring yourself into a happy state, which I yeah. I know easily know how to do it, right? And then you go to any meeting, you go to any you like now, like you go to the gym and you train much better. You like you know, like this bliss and happy mode. So like it just I think it's a life hack. No, so like I think it makes total sense to prioritize this because then everything else will yeah. be way easier. One thing I want to ask quickly is like so you said. Um, you have the chemicals that get released when, when there is love, mm -hmm. but they say they don't get only released in, in romantic relationships. They also get released like love to parents, love to friends, or is it like, or is it like a different chemical we get released when? Yeah, so, so it all depends on intensity. Typically, we release more of the love chemicals if we have, a, if we have you know, children or if we're really in love with someone. I think with the parents, it definitely can too. The main thing 
about these chemicals and the reason I think people struggle to maintain and sustain levels of happiness is that we all have root limitations that are governed by trauma, our past life, the culture, our jobs that prevent us from continually making the habits that produce happiness. And so where we store that in our brain, like we have a lot of trauma and difficulties and we store that in our amygdala. And imagine amygdala is like this big tunnel or a big garbage can. Everything you've ever experienced that was difficult or traumatic in your youth is impressed inside the amygdala. And basically, like a trash can, we literally have the cover over the garbage can. Now, there are things like psychedelics and other avenues to open up the can to allow our prefrontal cortex, which is our logic center, and our amygdala to talk. But the amygdala stores a lot of information about us that's challenging and difficult. You know, like people that have experienced serious trauma that have been neglected or abused or hit. And so our brains shut that down. Our brains are so powerful. They shut that down. And so why we struggle sometimes, why some people can struggle sometimes with happiness is because we have, you know, deep amounts of trauma that's stored in the amygdala and the, the trauma leaks out from your amygdala, starts controlling your prefrontal cortex, which is your logic center. And then before we know it, something happens and we can get triggered. And that is coming from the amygdala. And when you get triggered and when it's a hard emotion, our prefrontal cortex shrinks and the stress hormones come out. And it takes us, like I've heard, upwards of three hours to fully come down from the stress. So you can imagine if you have a lot of trauma and you're constantly getting triggered, and your stress hormones are more active in your body than the dopamine or the serotonin, like you're going to have an imbalance. And also stress is such a killer, no? Like, uh, totally. like our doctors say that one of the ways to get older is avoid stress, you know, like it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so now we're at the topic, no? Like, so what would you say, what prevents, uh, what prevents happiness, yeah. right? So like, uh, maybe also going to what, what not to do, like what, yeah. what, what prevents happiness? Yeah. What prevents people from being happy? I think a lot of what I was just saying is kind of the maybe psychology behind it. But first of all, just to touch on this idea of happiness and what really prevents people. One of the biggest things that I think prevents people from true happiness is not having enough access to these chemicals, right? Which is why they created medication. And I would say there's other natural ways to produce those happy chemicals. What I was um, reading the other day and listening to was the study on loneliness. And a Harvard researcher had said that loneliness is just as bad for your health as smoking a half a pack of cigarettes a day. And when they did, when Harvard also did this research on the longevity of people that um, were the happiest in their life, what they found is that the secret was community. So really, 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 I think what can create happiness is community, is not feeling lonely, really feeling seen and heard. What somebody deeply gets you when they look into your eyes and they say, like, I hear you, I see you. Most of us 
feel uncomfortable with that. Most of us have a very hard time, you know, me included, being super vulnerable because we've been hurt in the past. So I think that what prevents people from being happy is, I think, trauma and difficulty of really feeling vulnerable. Because a child, if you think about a child, they scream when they're unhappy, they laugh when they're happy, right? They don't have all of these conditioning. And that is, that is very, very true. And that it, yeah, it's just sometimes, you know, for some listeners, we know this, but it's hard to still, still culture it. So now with, with this, we come to my, to my next question also. When you coach to your very executive um, executives or like very successful clients, what what do you teach them? What are some tips and tricks to for happiness? Right? Yeah. Well, the way that I work, I don't do a lot of teaching around tricks. The way that I work with people is I go very very deep in their values and their belief structures, and I figure out what they what they want. And then where they are, and I help them bridge that. So what do you want? Where do you want to be? What's preventing you from getting there? And then we clear up all the blockages that are preventing them from getting there so they can reach their peak state. So I do a lot of work um, in peak performance, very, very high-functioning executives. And so I don't give them tips because they have the answers inside of them. But what we do figure out is what would work for them. I think the biggest difficulty that people have is they try cookie cutter approaches that don't work for them. What does the key split? Cookie cutter approaches, I it's like a McDonald's where every happy meal looks the same. Mm -hmm. It's the answer. You know, you have like happy meals and all of these, like it's cookie cutter means it's the same for everybody. So for example, everybody's neurology, brain chemistry, fingerprint, life experiences, culture is different. So the way that I work with my clients is that take a very, very specialized approach. So, for example, this client that I was telling you about, um, he and I have taken maybe eight hours of consistent diving in deep, understanding his, uh, basically his brain and his software and all the glitches within the software. And then we walk through these belief change processes to shipped the neural pathways and how they're firing together it's 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 amazing work for you know to watch these people flourish and grow and um and and, and so you also help them to find out which which traumas they have and how to overcome these traumas or what are the biggest uh one of the biggest uh steps to for them to to, to get better the number one step for anyone in my humble opinion is a willingness mm -hmm. first and you have to want to change you have to want to change you have to be willing to change and the, the, i think the reason why some people are too afraid of change you know it's what tony robbins talks about is <clears throat> is that we're either seeking pleasure or running from pain mm -hmm. and so think about that for a second if if working on your emotions is so painful we're going to run away from that so sometimes the game, it's a lot easier to be comfortably miserable than to put yourself out there, get vulnerable, deal with the very, very traumatic, difficult things to get to the other side. But what people I think don't realize is how sweet it is to get to the other side. 
I remember when I was really young, I had these beliefs around my capability coming from the family I did, from the culture that I did, and I didn't believe that I could fully accomplish or be capable. So when I got into NYU in New York for grad school, I thought I got lucky. When I got straight A's, I thought I was just a fluke, you know? And it wasn't until I <laughs> discovered this work that I realized those were just beliefs. And once I changed the beliefs, it was like I was under a table and I was crouching. And for the first time in my life, I remember it was like standing up straight and the table was away. And from there, like I made sense to me, I got hooked. For me, by far the easiest way I found for myself to changing beliefs were affirmations. Yeah. Would you say it's the same for you and your clients or what? Because for me, it's like it's it really helps affirmations. Now, currently, I always look for affirmations against the beliefs I still have and yeah. they write them down on the times and it really helps me a lot. Like what, what, what are some, yeah, what are, like for you to also, you, you clearly see where there's affirmations that helps the most or? Oh my God, air high five. <laughs> Woo, okay, that was an actual high five. Only <laughs> real things on the podcast. <laughs> um, I think affirmations are unbelievably incredible. My previous coach, Lizette, and I used to talk about affirmations all the time. My friend Deb Case was a, a amazing affirmation person. I think it fully helps. Um, the one caveat that I would say around it is that sometimes if we have an affirmation, like if you've had really deep trauma with, um, I had a client who had a lot of deep trauma with her uh, father. He had done some very inappropriate negative things to her at a very young age, bullied her, scared her, beat her. And so she never felt safe with men. So for example, if she just did the affirmation of I'm safe with men, I'm safe with men, that could help her change her state, her state of mind. But it wouldn't, I, in my experience, I don't know that it would fully take away the trauma. So doing the root cause work. Now, I'm not a trauma therapist and I'm not a therapist. But, you know, in working with this woman, particularly, what we started to do was dig deep around her belief structures and walk through these four or five step belief change processes that literally change your neural pathways. And from there, after she addressed the limitation, then doing the affirmation made all the difference in the world. And she felt like, yes, I'm capable. I can do it. And I can be me because she always felt like she couldn't be herself because she was rejected. And now she believes that she's happy to be herself and that it's safe. And so that's the distinction is like when I work with my clients, if there's anything really deep, we excavate that. We're archaeologists, you know, of the mind. We sort of dig in, take it out, and then boom. Affirmations is probably one of the best ways. I love it. Mm -hmm. And what, 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 what are the easy, like... So some people have like traumas that we don't even know know about yet, but they are deeply affecting them. Yeah. So, can, can you also help help them to find to find these traumas? And if 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 yes, how, like how how, how do you help them to to find to find it? Because it's like you can solve it with affirmations once 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 you've, you 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 found the trauma, yeah. right? But like how how would you yeah how would you go ahead and what what finding them? Yeah. Um. So have you ever heard of that? You ever heard of that um, anecdote? The nail and hammer costs like five dollars, 
but then knowing where to hammer the nail is the million dollars. Exactly. That's the idea. Yeah, what all the time. Yeah. So that's the idea with my work is because I've studied this with Chris and Tim Halbong for over six years, doing thousands of hours of training to get to the root cause belief structure. That's the hardest part. So it's really hard to say that I do this one thing, but I take all those years of training and I assess and quickly, you know, using um, sensory acuity, you can look at people's physiology, you can look at the way they're speaking to figure out their limitations. Some easy ways to catch a limiting belief is if somebody says, I can't, it's not possible. Beliefs around possibility, beliefs about uh, capability, beliefs about whether they're hopeless or helpless, you can start extrapolating those categories. Mm -hmm. Well, I also want to like also for uh, for the previous uh, answers already, already like now take a moment to say thank you for me and the audience for all the wisdom. We're not finished yet, but I just want to like really thank you because there's oh. a lot of wisdom we can, I, I can apply and we can all apply. So that's really amazing. Great. What's um, what's some un uncommon advice or yep. happiness that you have? Because it's like, you know, the common advice, like we've been covering a lot of things, like obviously doing sports makes people happier. Yeah. Obviously, meditation really works. But people know this by now. I want uncommon advice. Yeah. Uncommon advice on happiness. Sure. Um, this is my personal experience. So I'm, I think I'm going to share it with you. Like, I remember the year that I made the most money is the year that I cried the most. And it wasn't like a depression cry. It was like an excavation releasing of cry. So I think that there's really multiple... Uh, avenues but for me it was deeply feeling my emotions like when I would I would do yoga and meditation specifically kundalini yoga to induce feelings of emotion and what I would do is like fully release them also breath work every time I do breath work maybe 90% of the time when I do breath work I start crying like you and I were doing breath work and I started crying and so the more we can release these emotions right the less levels of cortisol and stress we have you know I heard this research that men die earlier because of suppressed emotion so the best way, in my opinion, uh, to induce happiness is to feel our emotions. And if you can cry on a regular basis and release that negativity, I'm not saying get depressed. I'm not, I am by no means saying, you know, but like this is why people watch, you know, sad movies, a good cry. Mm -hmm. A good cry could be the path to happiness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, like a, a movie. Like if if you're anyone's audience listening for looking for a movie, like watch the Notebook. Can we to cry for sure? Like Walk to Remember will make you cry for sure. Oh, really? <laughs> walk to Remember is a very very sad, sad and beautiful movie, but sad, sad and <laughs> So, um, um, what for for me? Like a, I'm always very curious, like about you know, from happiness for me is very connected with inner peace. When you feel yeah. full of complete complete stillness and inner peace and being fully in the moment. How often, how often do you experience these, yeah. these, these, these faces? Sure. It's all contextual. And my, my inner peace can be created by my environment and my conscious ability to structure that environment. And what can impact inner peace is um, trauma. A lot of times we hold trauma with our families. So, I mean... I love my family, like my sister Wagwa and Rona and Riha, my mommy Sophia. These women are so powerful in my life. And I find that if we 
um, are in situations where, like, if we're really stressed at work and then with, with our family, so we have the work trigger, we have the family trigger, that can create, that can throw us off inner peace. And so for me, moments of inner peace are really in the morning when I'm really silent and I do writing and journaling and meditation. And um, yeah, those are, those are really my happy moments. The more I structure time for myself, the happier I am and the more inner peace I can have. And I would say the second thing is the more limiting beliefs I change, the more internal work I do, the more sustained inner peace I have. Mm, yeah, you have it for, exactly. It lasts for longer. Yeah. The more you work on yourself, but yeah. it lasts for longer yeah. periods of time, which is very, very beautiful. Yeah. And uh, so you say, so okay, what, what helped you to get there is, uh, is uh, like journaling in the morning. So, so yeah. yeah. And any other, any other places, like for me, for example, like going for a walk, And it's absolutely green outside and everything. Like this nearly always brings you into inner peace. So maybe it's one thing to share from me. Yeah. What are other things for you that sure. get you into these, these, these yeah. states of like not worrying about uh, the future or thinking about the past? Yeah. So I was talking about crying earlier. Having a good cry afterwards gives me a sense of stillness and peace or just having a big belly laugh. Um, breath work really helps. So like what I do when I wake up in the morning is I'll meditate between 30 and 45 minutes. Um, and if I have a lot of time, I'll do journaling and I'll read something really inspiring. And then I'll write my gratitude list as if it's already happened. There's a book called The Gratitude Formula, which um, basically says that gratitude is the fastest way to happiness and appreciation. So I'll do the gratitude. Then I do Kundalini Yoga. Uh, Kundalini yoga is the Rajabhan yoga. So it's very so exactly like it. actually, it was actually one of my next questions. So perfect, you mentioned it. Can we please go more deeper? Because a lot of people don't know yet Kundalini yoga, and uh, please share more about it. Yeah, what, what makes it so special? Special to you, and what are the origins? Like anything you want to share about it? I think it's such a sure. beautiful topic. Yeah, I'm happy to. But just to finish my morning routine, like when I got certified in, um, in yoga in 2008, I've been taking cold showers since then. So I do a cold shower, do Kundalini yoga. Is it not every morning? Yeah. I do. Yeah, I do. I've been doing it since 2008. So like these things around neurolinguistics and cold showers and breath work, I was so lucky to discover them, you know, in college. And now they've become so popularized. It's so vindicating. It's so, it's so validating. I'm like, yes, you know, finally. <laughs> Oh, uh, but yeah, that's a conglomeration of my morning routine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then let's 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 share more about like, uh, like so. Kundalini yoga is a practice. Um, what they say around Kundalini yoga is that doing it for one year is equivalent to doing ten years of hatha yoga spiritually, yeah. and it combines breath mantra, chanting to induce and connect the left and right hemispheres of your brain. It can also Uh, in my experience, release TMT in your brain, and you can get you really high. Mm -hmm. um, but it. Because for we all want another good thing. in a very, yeah. I know, beautiful feeling with your brain's TMT. Yeah, but um, imagine that the Kundalini is a serpent at the base of your spine, and it coils around your spine. And when it goes, when it shoots out through your crown chakra, you just have a really powerful experience. You get really 
deep, deep moments of joy from it. So I like doing it because I'm all about development, like all day long. And so I think Kundalini Yoga is the yoga to do if you're seeking personal development. Other yoga is all amazing too. Um, but in my personal experience, just what works for me is doing a very potent type of yoga. And you were teaching it or were practicing it for many years or? Yeah, I just, like everything, I just kind of fell into it because of my passion. So um, with Kundalini Yoga, um, I did it after college. I just like found a teacher, uh, you know, he was wearing a white turban and he looked very enlightened and um you know, I just took time off work and I just lived on a mountain wearing a turban for almost a month and a half and learned the practice and meditated from like 4.30 in the morning to whatever evening. And just after that, I got so addicted to Kundalini Yoga that I do it every single day, even if it's for like 10 minutes. Actually, I love the next question, like a session can be anything between one ten minutes and two hours or yeah. what, 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 what was a typical length for a session? A typical class, if you go like in LA or New York, it's 90 minutes. Yeah. Um, but Kundalini meditations uh, can be for three minutes, 11 minutes, 21 minutes or 60 minutes. And so one of the, the one that I did this morning is called Sudarshan Chakra Kriya. You can Google it on YouTube. Um, it is one of the highest and most potent ones to do. I actually, when I work with my clients to begin with, we'll do some kundalini breaths, we'll do some breath work, we'll do a little bit of meditation before we dive into some of the deeper patterns. Yeah, what, uh, what, what, what Amina was actually teaching me before the podcast, that one of my favorite art, artists, I listen to her all the time, Sasatan Kaur, I hope yeah, I yeah. pronounce it right. Um, but she's actually a Kundalini Yoga teacher, and her with Chan, so music I listen to are actually designed are designed for are designed for uh, Kundalini Yoga. Yeah. And actually, what I'm gonna do after this podcast, I'm gonna I wanna go to Google and like and like uh, translate the lyrics because I'm very curious what I'm listening to, like what I was actually the meaning behind it. Yeah. Because obviously I didn't understand it yet, right? Yeah. So um, one of the last questions maybe is. Um, so I didn't know a lot about the concept of neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. So do you want to share about about yeah. it and what what was what the scientific reveals this? Sure. Why is it so important now? Yeah. Um, well, neuroplasticity is this idea that our brain can be moldable and changed, which in the past people believed it, it wasn't. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. But when, when did we find this out? Do you know more or less? Or? Yeah. I mean, I think it really started getting popular in 1948, mm -hmm. um, and neuroplasticity is obviously now a big hot topic, but um, before people, psychologists used to think that, okay, my brain can't be changed. You are the way you are, you've had the experiences that you have, and all you can do is just work on bettering yourself. But neuroplasticity shows us that when we have repetitious ways of rewiring our brain through, for example, positive affirmations, doing the belief work changes that I do with my clients, your neural pathways can shift. And once your neural pathways shift, they stop wiring in the same way. And like new wires, new neurons, like can essentially get created. It's not as simplistic as that, but you can start developing new neural pathways. And that's called, um, that's like, that's like the beginning stages of creating neuroplasticity. Um, you can also have a process when you let go of limiting beliefs that like your wires will stop f 
firing in the same way your neurons will and that's called synaptic pruning and synaptic pruning is where the same wires like that you had around trauma aren't firing together they're just not being used as much so if they're not being used as much and you're creating new pathways that's literally neuroplasticity at at its best well thank thank you i think it's a yeah it's a very beautiful view on that that we can Definitely change your brain. And also, like, I think a lot of people are experiencing it, luckily, and changing towards a more positive brain because optimism, like, they, you know, like, I read, I read like, but it's way easier to start your own company if you're optimist, for yeah. example, right? It's, it's very hard as a pessimist. And I struggle with explaining neuroplasticity because it's, it can get really sciencey. But the thing to know is that the idea of neuroplasticity has become popular because what we found is that people can actually shift their brain. So it gives people a lot of hope that no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've experienced, you can start to create new, excuse me, and happier pathways. And and, and also it's proven that you can make really, really big changes of the brain, no? Like over time, you can make enormous changes. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Consistency is key. Consistency is very, very important to keep chipping away. Um, you know, Cal Newport talks about this idea of deep work. And what he says is that a lot of times we don't give ourselves enough time to have undistracted time. And when you have undistracted time and you do this deep work, there's this uh, membrane that starts uh, building around your cells, your neurons, called myelin. And myelin um, can supercharge your learning and velocity of retention by 1,400%. But, but, but what's the name of the time? What do you call this? It's called myelin. No, no, but the time, undistracted time or? Deep work. Yeah, okay. Yeah, just to have, that means the deep work, by definition, is work that's challenging and you have complete free time from distraction and you need to do it for two, three, four hours at a time. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's one of the, like, because I, I want to know how you call it this time because I really think this is one of the biggest advices to, to the listeners also is like something to easily apply in your, in your day, like plan, like you were the coach, like how many hours per week we should plan. But I would say at least one once a week, two or three hours where you do absolutely nothing. You just have undistracted time of yeah. being fully, yeah. falling, fully, fully rare right. and like seeing what what's coming up and like yeah. not having to always live by clockwork and having the next beating, the next things like, yeah. Yeah. like yeah. always following clockwork is uh, definitely yeah. it's half unhappiness. Yeah. So just, Tricky. just about the myelination. So if you apply that to personal development work, it's the same idea that if you give yourself two, three hours of undistracted time to work on your emotions and your feelings, the velocity at which you can process those feelings can go up at 1400%. So it's really important to myelinate your neurons by having undistracted time. I really like it. And then maybe one of the last or the last question for you is, what is wealth? Like, what, what is, in your definition on your world, what is wealth for you? Yeah, I think wealth is a state of mind of having freedom and joy and connection. Like you said, you want also the, the Harvard study found out, no? Like, right. uh, that's, yeah. that, br- that brought the most long, long, long longevity and, uh, and, and yeah. nothing. Exactly. 
been an absolute, absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for giving extreme amounts of, of value in, in this podcast. And uh, looking forward to having you again, of course, in the future also. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. That was really fun. Yay. Thank you.